Hey folks, I'm John Moore, a marketer and podcaster at Salesforce, and this is Our Digital Nation. Our Digital Nation is a Salesforce podcast, but the views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Salesforce. The work of advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging practices has dominated public discourse in recent years, and many organizations are re-examining their policies to better understand how to address historic inequities. At Salesforce, equality is one of our core values. We believe that businesses can be powerful platforms for social change, and that it's our responsibility to further equality for all. So today, we continue our series on equity-centered digital transformation, where we're sitting down with executives, thought leaders, and equality champions to explore how public sector organizations might leverage technology to close equity gaps in their workforces and for the populations they serve. Today's guest is Katie Cook, Senior Director of Sales Strategy at Salesforce, and as a wife, mother, combat veteran, and first woman to fly with the Navy's elite Blue Angels, Katie knows a thing or two about navigating change. In today's conversation, we're talking about equity as a foundational business practice and the potential for technology to help trailblazers everywhere create sustainable change in their organizations. So I want to ask you this kind of background question. Let's give our listeners a bit of insight on just who you are personally, beyond what you do and what you offer to the world and all the amazing professional endeavors. I want to hear a bit about your journey and what led you to choose the path that you've taken thus far in your life. Yeah. So I definitely don't have a traditional path for life in general, but definitely not for Salesforce. You know, I kind of grew up a military brat living all over the world. I even went to high school in Japan, which was really cool. And I really liked this idea of service and giving back. My grandfather was a first generation American from Sweden and he served in the military. And he, through his 20 year career, basically took my family from nothing to upper middle class through his service. So he really instilled this idea of giving back to a country who literally let my family live the American dream. I considered being a firefighter, a police officer, a doctor, a lawyer. I even considered the nunnery at one point, but I knew I wanted to have kids and they tend to frown upon that. So I, I ultimately decided that the military was the path for me. I attended the a Naval Academy. I graduated in 2008 and commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. I went on to flight school where I earned my wings in 2011, where I flew the C-130, which is a large four-engine propeller aircraft. I deployed multiple times and eventually was selected as the first woman to fly for the famous Blue Angels. And that's, I guess, what I'm known for. And so I've had the opportunity to serve my country, see the world. And ultimately, when I started my family, I decided that my priorities had changed a bit. And I wanted to correct my work-life imbalance. So I transitioned to the Marine Corps Reserves in 2019. And upon transitioning off of active duty, I actually came here to Salesforce. A lot of people ask me, wow, that seems like quite a leap. Why didn't you go for the airlines or something like that? My answer was that I was looking for an organization or a company that was steadfast in its values in the same way that the Marine Corps instills the idea of honor, courage, commitment. And we have these values at the core of everything we do as Marines. And Salesforce leads not just the CRM space, but business as a whole from the front. 
with its entire identity building on the bedrock of our core values of trust, customer success, innovation, equality, and now sustainability. So for me, it wasn't that much of a leap. Ethically, I was coming to a place that was dedicated to these core values in the same way that the Marine Corps was. I love that you mentioned that. A lot of that lends itself to the topic of today's conversation, which is really all about equity-centered or values-anchored digital transformation. And you've had a front row seat to what digital transformation has meant for the Department of Defense and for us here in private sector in our everyday lives. We're seeing the impact of digital transformation all around us in every way. So it extends from conversations about national security all the way down to why can't I find my favorite item on the shelf at the grocery store and accessibility and inclusion and equity. Those are centered in all of those conversations. And I am so privileged that you would choose to join us today and be a part of this conversation because of the role that you've been able to play in changing that landscape a bit. So we're talking about a pretty nuanced topic today. And I've asked other guests that spoke on this topic, this same question, DEI, that acronym, and the words that make up the acronym. Let's begin with breaking down and defining DEI from your perspective and your experience. What do those words, diversity, equity, inclusion, really mean to you? Yeah, so traditionally I've seen DEI stand for, you know, the policies and programs that promote the representation and participation of different groups, whether that's based on gender, race, sexual orientation, various different groups. And I think these terms are often kind of lumped together because you have to have all three to have a truly fair and representative organization. For example, your organization might be very diverse But if all the people of color are working on the factory floor and all the leadership positions are occupied by white men, then clearly it's lacking inclusivity and equality. And to put it kind of in more militaristic terms, I see diversity, equality and inclusivity as kind of a three pronged, mutually supported attack against discrimination. Right. You have to be able to approach it in three different directions and you need all three to ultimately be successful and reach that truly fair and representative organization. Okay. I love the flavor you're bringing to this. This is so (laughs) true to who you are. (laughs) So the three-pronged mutually supported attack, I think I'm going to borrow from that, but I love that perspective. And I agree with you in that there are so many times when we hear these terms being conflated into sort of this aggregate such that it becomes a diluted idea, but they're not in every instance, treated with the level of sophistication, care, and attention that each of these ideals and concepts merits individually as individual disciplines as part of this collective practice. How in your personal life and professional work do you maintain a clear perspective and what measures do you use to ensure that all areas are being addressed the right way? You know, I'm a sales strategist at at Salesforce. So I think everything, as you mentioned, needs to be measured. You need to have these specific KPIs. And I think each one of these three can have their own measures. So you're ensuring that you're not only focusing on one arm of this attack, if you will, right? So you could have a very diverse organization, as I mentioned earlier, but there's no equity, there's no inclusion. I would say if you can have KPIs and you can have measurable things that you want to achieve in each 
of the three prongs, then you can treat them as individual efforts. You need to make efforts in all three areas to ultimately be successful. You can't just focus on one. That's fantastic. So you mentioned the fact that one of the highlights, and there's so much more to you aside from this, of course, but one of the highlights of your career is that you were chosen as the first woman Blue Angel pilot. But you mentioned in previous interviews that Katie didn't pop up out of nowhere, just kind of drop out of the sky, no pun intended, (laughs) but (laughs) there was a foundation Uh, that was laid for you. And you talk a lot about those shoulders that you stand on. So share a bit with us about the trailblazers that you looked to or even still look to for inspiration. Any woman that has come before me in the aviation sector opened doors for me to even have the opportunity to be a Blue Angel. That would have never even been in the cards for me if they hadn't been through the trials and tribulations to kind of pave that path. You know, when I was growing up, my idol... And, you know, you probably have girls that have photos or posters of like Justin Bieber on their wall or Hanson, if you want to go back to how old I was. Sally Ride was actually somebody because I did my third grade science project on hydroponics and I grew green beans and tomatoes in my windowsill. I basically took a milk jug, cut it in half, filled it with water and grew beans and stuff in there. And hydroponics is what astronauts use to grow food in space. I was in love with Sally Ride. I thought she was phenomenal. And for those that don't know, she was the first American woman in space. She's an LGBTQ icon. You know, I sent her a letter and was like, I'm your biggest fan. And she sent me back a signed autograph and I kept it on my wall. And and so Sally Ride was definitely someone that I looked up to and I gained inspiration from when I felt like the world was on my shoulders, like before my first show, when I know everyone was like watching, is this woman going to fail? I felt like I was representing an entire gender, you know, at an air show. And then I took inspiration from her as, as the first American woman in space. And then I would say some other people that I gain inspiration from, and this might be a little bit hokey, but they're my children. I'm a mother of three. My children are five, three, and one. And they might not be trailblazers in the traditional sense, but literally every day they're learning how to be a human. They're learning how to walk. They're learning how to talk. They're learning how to navigate this beautiful, scary world that we're in every day. And just watching them grow and learn and comprehend things They're trailblazing through life. And it's an inspiration to me when they find beauty in the smallest things, or they find inspiration in their own life through, you know, mom, look, it's a rainbow or mom, look, this flower's growing here, whatever. And and those would be easy things for me to just ignore and just, oh, I'm so busy and focused. I got this project due, but they slow down and are fascinated by even the smallest things. And that helps me reset my life and really evaluate what is important. I would say those are kind of my, my two inspirational points. That is incredible. I love that. Um, Shout out to the trailblazers in training who are (laughs) are coming up the ranks. That is fantastic. And I love the fact that your inspirations really kind of span generational gaps, right? So you've got to look forward. You've got to look back. You can draw inspiration from all those places. Speaking of which you were able to recently participate in Salesforce's Trailblazing Women's Summit, which is so exciting. And I had an opportunity to lean in and take in some of that content. I love the conversation about intersectionality. 
this might be a bit of a, a transition to make here, but I want to use that to land the point that everybody who shows up in any space is representing some sort of opportunity for a conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the points that you made in a previous conversation we had about the roles that are being played in gender equity specifically are by and large roles that are being occupied by women. And there tends to be a very large absence of the presence of men. And I would love to hear from your perspective how that lands with you and how we should be thinking about that to maybe correct the way that we're approaching these issues. For me, if I was a leader of someone who was newer diverse, maybe they have autism or something like that. As a leader, I would want to do my research and find out how I can best empower them, how I can best communicate with them and what is the easiest way to do, right? And I think that is what a leader should do is investigate and dig in and figure out how to help your subordinates be as most empowered as they can be, to put their best self forward, right? And when it comes to leadership, a lot of times of women are male leaders, which unfortunately the the vast majority of leadership in the corporate world, Dan and the Marine Corps in this case are male, I feel like they also should be doing some research on how to best lead and empower those that are on their teams. And men need to be in this conversation. And even if it's just from a leadership perspective, because I think a lot of times men acknowledge that, yes, there is a disparity between women and men when it comes to pay. I think that tends to be accepted in general. But until they hear stories and they put a face with the stories, they put a name with the stories. And oftentimes that person works in the cubicle next to them until they realize like, holy cow, Katie's gone through some of this stuff or Annie or Michelle or whatever have gone through this stuff. And I think it finally makes it real. That's why it's so important to listen to these stories and listen to these people give their perspectives because, you know, you can be empathetic to things, but until you actually can put a face with a name, I think it's really hard to want to take action against it. I I hope that makes sense. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. And I think what that does is once you've had that experience, that exposure, you've put a name and a life, a human in front of what you've been told anecdotally, just in kind of a general sense. Yes. It really does, in my experience, shift you from a position of allyship. And I don't want to diminish the work of allyship, but I do think that allyship should not be the end of the journey. I do believe that the next step of the journey is sponsorship. Yes. That's championing and leading from the front. Yes. And finding and creating those opportunities that may not even be in the scope of the person that you are trying to pull forward or that you're working on behalf of to pull forward, putting their name in rooms they may not ever enter, bringing them up in spaces where they may not have a place just yet. And I think that that's really, really important. But I'd love to hear from your perspective, 
what you feel sponsorship, strong sponsorship actually looks and feels like. I've spoken about this before where there's a fine line between sponsorship and tokenization. You don't want to pull someone or put them on a board or give them an opportunity because they're black, because they're a woman, because they're an underrepresented minority, because they're LGBTQ, because I feel like that undercuts every effort that they've made to be accepted for their work or to to be able to say this person is outstanding at their job. They're not there because they're insert, you know, description of them. Uh, I think one way that I feel like someone could be an effective ally or an effective sponsor is particularly when it comes to performance. And it's a simple thing that could have a tremendous impact. You know, going along with this idea is every single successful woman at Salesforce and the Marine Corps or wherever have heard that they got where they are, not because of their performance, but because they're a woman. Everyone has heard that at some point, if you are a successful woman in your career, and it's that kind of talk that undermines trust, teamwork, morale, you name it, it undermines it. And I would say nine times out of 10, likely the people saying that have not simply been told that she was better than you. Having those hard conversations, especially if they're male-led, removes the wind out of the sails of she's getting extra privileges or they're getting extra privileges. So when you hear that type of talk, nipping that in the bud directly and in a timely manner is key. And just saying, bro, like maybe you haven't heard this before, but you're not perfect. And she's really good at these things that you're not. And maybe that's what they were selecting, you know? And so I think that can kind of correct those off the cuff comments of she got it because she was a woman. A lot of times it's kind of faux pas, right? To be like, oh, well, they achieved their quota and you didn't or whatever it is. But I can tell you on the Blue Angels, the year before I got there, they had a big investigation and they found that the team was very misogynistic, that they were doing some practices that were not friendly to having women there. And then the next year I got selected for the team. And so people were like, oh, the only reason that she got selected is because they needed to make it inclusive. They, they're trying to recover and save face because they had this investigation previously. And I was asked literally on national television, <laughs> like, what do you say to people who do that? And my response was, go have them watch an air show. I fly the same or better than my male counterparts. One of them was my husband, which was hilarious. We were not married at the time, but I still rub it into his face. I I tell him to go watch an air show because my performance was the same or better than theirs. And I deserve to be there. And so I think that we need to give women the same exact thing in in the corporate world outside of the cockpit. Say, hey, look, these, these are the KPIs. And she was ranked in front of you. And that's why she got the job or the role or the opportunity. So let's lean in a little bit more on that idea of tokenization. Let's double click on what you shared, because I do think it's really important for us to call to the fore the fact that that is a damaging practice. And it is something that may happen inadvertently if you're not paying attention, if you're not being as mindful as you just told us you need to be in building these practices. I feel as though some of it results from the fact that equity practices are rooted in a mindset that treats diversity, equity, and inclusion as an afterthought or treats it as some sort of addition to the larger strategy. And it's just not completely, I'll use this term, normalized. So from your perspective, how should we be approaching 
this practice to ensure that it is really germane to the way that we think about building our business strategy, growth, and doesn't become something that could potentially be weaponized or create an environment where folks feel alienated. I I think your question is spot on. I think organizations that over-rotate on DEI initiatives can result in tokenization, and that undermines the hard work and effort that maybe underrepresented minorities, women, people of color are put in. Organizations really need to be careful because it can come across as we're going to give a certain group of people an unfair advantage over their peers instead of we're going to level the playing field for those that have been systematically disadvantaged. You need to fill in the hole so everybody starts at an even playing field. We're not growing the mountain and putting them above you, if that makes sense. And so I I think that's really, really important. And I personally think that equality needs to be the bedrock of the business. It's not enough to have these little programs or have the, you know, oh, well, we have an office of equality or we have a chief people officer. Yes, that's important. And I'm glad you have that. But that's not where equality or DEI initiatives reside. It's not only their responsibility. It needs to be in the bedrock of the company in every single practice they do. And I think the best way to do this is through transparency. The secrecy and the social faux pas of speaking about money traditionally systematically disenfranchises minorities, women, workers with, uh, with disabilities, right? And I don't know how many stories I heard from other women myself included, that stated, you know, I accidentally saw how much money my peer made and that prompted me to ask for a raise or look for a new job, et cetera. And trust me, I get that the business needs to be able to incentivize people monetarily, but if we can make it public knowledge, then there is zero doubt that I'm getting paid equal. And there is zero doubt that the company values equality over even margin in this case, right? Which is a huge statement to say, I I want everybody to get paid the same. And I'm publicly going to show you that they're getting paid the same. And, you know, in in some states like Colorado, you have to publish the minimum pay for a job. And that's just a small example. But I think transparency, whether that comes from even demographics that you post or send out to publicly show we have this many people of color in leadership positions. We have this percentage of people of color in mid-management. We have this many employees that are underrepresented minorities. And Salesforce does do that. You know, and I think that's important. That transparency shows that we are quite literally putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to the type of people that we want to come and work for Salesforce. Katie Cook is dropping the bombs and hitting the hot button issues. I promise you, I was just reading an article the other day and it talked about the rise in this movement of transparency, specifically using the example of compensation. So it seems as though newer generations are far more open to what has historically been viewed as a very taboo conversation about what are you making? Because To your point, it does empower people to then be able to advocate for themselves in ways that they just weren't able to do before with this cloak of secrecy. However, I feel like a lot of that behavior is rooted in a culture that is so deeply engendered in our organization. So I want to ask you 
a bit of a controversial question. What is your perspective on building and improving inside of an existing context as opposed to dismantling the system and starting over? (laughs) First of all, I will say this, this is a very weird topic for me because like I said, in the Marine Corps, pay is public knowledge. It's set by the Senate and Congress, and you can look up and see how much I make every single year. And so when I came to the civilian sector and I was like, oh, can I just ask this person what they make? Like, no, 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 no. That's really weird. And and it also, I would say, disenfranchises veterans who are transitioning out because we don't know how much to ask for. We have no idea. We don't know how much we're worth. How do our skills translate? And talking about money is the hardest thing that I found as a veteran. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of your question, circling back to that of improving or churning an already established entity versus dismantling the system, which you know me, I'm a Marine, so let's just get in there and dismantle it. But if we need to slowly but surely change it, I think we need to look at causal factors. And so even in amazing companies like Salesforce who have taken efforts to literally, like I used the the phrase earlier, put their money where their mouth is, they looked at disproportionate pay amongst minorities and women, and they are fixing it. They are fixing it by leveling the pay fields. They're making those steps. But I think when you look at the causal factor of why the heck did they have to do that? Why did they have to do that? Is it because hiring managers were subconsciously when they would hire men paying them more. I don't know what that answer is, but I know that there's companies out there that are looking for it. And it would be very interesting. And again, I'm a data nerd, but it'd be very interesting in a couple of years if they have to do it again, if we have to reevaluate pay again and fix disproportional pay again. And if it is, then that is telling us that our biases, our internal culture, as as you mentioned, is not being fixed by whatever training or whatever things that we're trying to put through. Yes, it's important that we're looking at it and we're correcting it. We're looking at it and correcting it. But really, so that we don't ever have to correct it again, we need to change the internal culture and identify the causal issues of that. Yeah, change is afoot. Change is in the wind. I'm with you. I want to hear from the expert while we have you on the line (laughs) (laughs) for any public sector leaders or even public sector adjacent leaders or outside of public sector, any leaders who are hoping to make progress, or maybe there are practitioners who are sitting out there now who have been doing this for a while and they're just trying to explore, okay, well, what are the digital tools that I can pick up today? tomorrow. And that can really make a difference for me and help me to measure the impact that I'm hoping to make. What advice would you have for those folks and where to start? What's amazing about Salesforce's technology or technology in general is that it's customizable. I'll tell you a quick story about the the C-130s. Traditionally, you fly from you sitting in the left seat and you use the autopilot and the knob is right in between the left and the right seat. And we fly off of a HUD or a heads up display, which is essentially like a glass screen that it's projected onto. And you can see all your reading out. So you don't have to keep looking down at your instruments. They're projected right in front of you. Sometimes we would have to fly from the right seat 
and we would use the autopilot from over there. Well, the cockpit was designed for an average male because I'm a bit shorter than the average male. If I would fly using the autopilot from the right seat, I would have to lean over so much that I could not see my hood. And so I couldn't see my instruments. And so I was not physically able to do both at the same time. So I adapted and only flew from the left seat when I was in combat. You know, that's just a small example of how women or smaller men were not involved in the design process early on. A C-130 is not customizable. However, we have this ability to customize things with technology nowadays, which is amazing, especially with web-based design. We can make it more customizable and in inclusive environment. Recently, there have been a ton of studies in the UX world on how to make information more digestible to the neurodiverse community. And one example I've seen is for people with dyslexia. And I didn't know this, but 16% of the world's population has some sort of dyslexia. 16%. Could you imagine a company simply ignoring 16% of its potential customers or a government ignoring 16% of its population? That's insane to me. You know, you would leave that market untapped. And simply because you didn't design your website or your interactive digital front door, if you will, in a manner in which everyone could comprehend what you were trying to say in a clear design, right? And so not only that, some of the world's most brilliant minds were dyslexic. So some examples were like Richard Branson, Leonardo da Vinci, John Lennon, Pablo Picasso, Steven Spielberg, Albert Einstein. Could you imagine if society did not include these beautiful minds simply due to web design? That was just a small example of, of dyslexia, but it kind of proves my point here is technology is customizable. And so when you are thinking about how do I access the largest audience, that audience is not a neurotypical white male. It is not. And you have people out there, UX designers, whatever, that have done the research in what can I do to make this more digestible to people who, who maybe have atypical neurodiverse, you know, function. And so I really think leveraging those types of customizable things to make it accessible and inclusive to all is, is really, really important to, to companies this year, because we, we don't want to ostracize or exclude some of the most brilliant minds that we've seen in history, because we are lazy and you have the tools there to do it. So I want to just close with hearing from you what are the exciting trends that you think are kind of starting to take hold? Like, you know, we just talked about, you know, there's this culture of transparency now that's on the rise. There is a culture of forward thinking and an expectation really of technology adapting circumstances to fit me as the human, keep me yes. as the human at the center. You know, you said it earlier about human centricity being so important and a lot more people are adopting these mindsets. What are some of the other exciting shifts in our thinking and our behaviors and our approach that you think are going to really accelerate us in this digital future? One thing that I'm really loving about this, the younger generation and this uprise in social movement is I feel like people are realizing that we can't make it alone. And just because I am doing well, 
just because I am a white woman that is upper middle class, I'm doing well, doesn't mean that I can ignore the struggles and the barriers that those around me are facing. It is my responsibility to be actively involved in dismantling those obstacles. And whether those obstacles are climate change and we're focusing on sustainability or they are social issues, as we've been speaking about in this podcast, we are collectively stronger together, leveraging the, I guess, best of each one of those people of all these diverse backgrounds to advance society and the globe one small step at a time is a value that's really instilled in this next generation, which is amazing that they realize that being on an island by yourself is not how we achieve success. And I am so empowered by that because, you know, in the Marine Corps, we're raised that you're never alone. You never leave a a man behind. You're never alone. You always have your team with you. And we specialize in fighting in what we call a, a Marine Air Ground Task Force, where we have aviation assets and ground assets and supply assets, and we can all mutually support the main effort. And I think society as a whole is finally seeing that, which is cool. We can all come together and use our specialization and use the most talents that we have to advance society as a whole. Yes, Yes and yes. We, I'm going to go very Salesforce on you and say we are better together. Together, yes. I, how did I miss that? I couldn't help it. I had to yeah. throw in the tagline. Yes. <laughs> but this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. And thank you so much again for making the time to be here. And I am hoping that we can do this again. Thank you. That was Katie Cook, Senior Director of Sales Strategy at Salesforce. To learn more about Salesforce's ongoing commitment to our core value of equality, visit equality.com. And to learn about other incredible trailblazers that are harnessing technology to bring about change in the world, visit salesforce.com forward slash public sector. Follow us on Twitter at SalesforceGOV and join the discussion on LinkedIn at Salesforce for Government. Thanks for listening today. If you want more episodes like this, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Moore from Salesforce, and this is Our Digital Nation. Our Digital Nation.